Hi, I'm Cassie Burton, host of the Curiosity Junkie podcast. I want to personally thank you for taking the time to listen today. Please feel free to share your favorite episodes and don't forget to hit the subscribe and like buttons. There are a couple of ways you can help support the show. First, take a moment to rate the podcast and leave us a review. Greatly appreciate that. Second, hit the donate button or head over to CassieBurton.com to learn more and get signed up for the monthly newsletter. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is an author, writer's coach, podcaster, yoga teacher, spiritual seeker, and someone who suffers from complex PTSD. Please welcome Brad Wetzler to the show. Hi, Brad Wetzler. Welcome to the Curiosity Junkie podcast. Hi, Cassie. Good to see you. Yes. Great to see you. We kind of work together a little bit, but (laughs) this is fun. We are going to jump in and talk about a lot of things, but we're going to start off with your new podcast, Enlightened-ish, which I love. And I just really want to share that with everybody because it's a great podcast. So talk to us a little bit about why you started it. What's it about? Okay. Yeah, great. Well, I started a podcast this spring called The Path, and it was an interview format, and I enjoyed that, and I just uh, got some feedback that people wanted to hear a little bit more of my story, and so I just sat with that for a while and decided to relaunch it, and um, I had this name, Enlightenedish, and I owned the domain and everything, so I'm just going to use that. So the idea is um, is sort of, you know, I, I spent a lot of time chasing healing and chasing and really chasing enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was pretty hardcore on the path to, you know, trying to meditate and yoga my way, you know, to some greater state of being. And, you know, I failed. Uh, I as learned we all lot. do, right? As we all do. <laughs> we kind of have to go down if you're on that path to try to go for it. And then, then you kind of realize we're humans and we're never going to end up being, you know, the Buddha. But, you know, I guess we we can be our interview to Buddha too. But anyway, long story short, I started a podcast that was really about um, the spiritual journey and also looking at mental health aspects of it, um, of, you know, the, the, the healthy parts of a spiritual journey. And maybe there's some other parts of being on a spiritual journey that can kind of run counter to our own healing and wholeness. And so I'm kind of exploring that. There's a lot of travel you know, I was a travel writer for years and, and a part of my journey of healing and, and chasing enlightenment involved, uh, you know, traveling all over the world. So there's lots of storytelling and, and, and lessons learned from this, this journey I've been on for, for, you know, 10 years or so. So, yeah, that's what I like about it. You have a great voice and the stories are wonderful it's your story. And I think that's what makes it really cool is it's relatable because you're going through real life stuff Mm. while you're on these awesome adventures. (laughs) So I just think it's great. Well, thank you. And thank you for your help with it uh, as my editor. And so, um, (laughs) but no, I really enjoy doing it. It's really a meaningful part of my week. And, um, and yeah, I look forward to telling more stories and talking about issues too, uh, that, that arise um, for people who are on a, on a, a, a journey to get to know themselves, a journey to become whole, to some people call it awakening, some people call it individuating, whatever you call it. We're all, you know, some of us are on a path to try to find more meaning and know why we're here on this planet. And that's who this is for. So, 
Yes. Yes. And I, I think it's very relatable for pretty much anybody. Yeah. If you're yeah looking. Thank you. And, and I guess one other thing I wanted to add about it was that it's, um, you know, the part of the title enlightened dish, it really does acknowledge the humanity of, of the journey we're on and how it can be messy. And, you know, I think, um, one of the reasons I started the podcast too, is I, you know, I, 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 I ended up talking to a lot of, you know, swamis and, you know, llamas and, you know, mamas and papas and all the different types of, of spiritual leaders. And there was just a, once some people get to maybe a certain place as teachers, they seem to sometimes lose their humanity or at least they don't talk about it. And, and I, that struck kind of a, a chord in me that I, there's a part of me that just doesn't believe that these spiritual masters have quite transcended their humanity the way they can present. And so I wanted this to be, to come from the heart and come from a place of, of um, acknowledging that unless you are the Buddha or maybe there are, are some ascended masters out there, Jesus, whoever, maybe you are a spiritual teacher out there listening to this. Um, but I suspect you're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do so much too. That's, that's another thing I think that that makes the podcast interesting is you have some really great stories from when you were an adventure writer and travels, you've been all over the world. So it's really fascinating to kind of mentally, visually visit those places with you. Cause you do a great job of, of the story part of it. Well, thank also you. So an author, I'm just going to go through a couple of things. You do the podcast, you run some um, memoir coaching workshops and um, do that one-on-one. You also teach yoga. You've got a lot going on. But one of the things I find really fascinating about you is you are um, complex trauma uh, PTSD. So you have the CPTSD. Well, that's hard to say. And it stems from an event that happened fairly young in life. Yeah. And, and the more I understand about it, the, the more I learn about, you know, the causes of it. And it's, it's sort of a, yeah, it, it, about age 51 or so, um, after many years of, of uh, feeling like I was carrying a heavy burden of, of depression and you know, that just wouldn't leave and, and other symptoms that led to, you know, even even behaviors that I wasn't proud of. Um, and I went through many different diagnoses of these. And, and finally, you know, in my early fifties, um, you know, I, I, a doctor, a couple of different doctors, you know, just said, this is, this is what you have. And this is why it's been so confusing to, to other people and to yourself. And they said it was, it was PTSD and, and complex PTSD. And so, and it stems, you know, from, a few parts of my childhood. Uh, the first part of it is, you know, at age 12, I was on a canoeing trip with uh, my father. It was a, a Christian youth group that I belonged to as a, as a young person. I was 12, I think in seventh grade. And we went from uh, my home in Kansas city down to the Ozarks in, in, uh, in Arkansas for a, a canoe trip. And the river was high and a local man had said that we, probably shouldn't float it that it was that he recommended just just calling the trip off and you know fathers being fathers you know and it's sort of no we drove here we're macho we're going to do this and um on the first day of a two-day trip uh 
the canoe that my father and I were, were in uh, capsized and I went overboard and it was, the river was high, it was white water and my life jacket snagged on a log, a submerged log in the middle of the river. And, um, and I just remember, I still can feel the jerk of it. And, and I found myself trapped in the middle of the river with my, only my head and almost like up to my jaw um, above water. And occasionally the, the log would shift and I would sort of feel like I was being pulled under. And I was there for probably 10 or 15 minutes and my father had floated past and he was down on a sandbar and, you know, was looking up, but he looked helpless. He didn't seem to know what to do. And, and so I was there and I remember just sort of like facing my death is what I thought. And, um, and I remember praying and I was, you know, staring at the sky cause I really couldn't move my, my head around. And eventually um, another canoe carrying a friend of mine and his father, they must've seen me, but they rammed into this log and knocked me loose. And I floated away downstream. And I just remember feeling so free and like, you know, I mean, I'd been, through hell in 10 minutes and, yeah. and someone else scooped me up and, and ended up, you know, carrying on with the trip. Um, so, so that was the physical part of it. And then, you know, when I went home and, and this is the part I don't understand. It's a part that's more typical of, of complex trauma. Um, I went to tell my mother about it and my father must've had a lot of shame about what had happened or something, but he, he was unable to acknowledge that it happened and, and, and sort of told my mother I was telling an untruth. And so I buried that memory. I mean, I, I, never, I never lost sight of the memory. I knew that it happened. It wasn't like a buried memory, but I, I just had to cope with it myself and couldn't talk to anybody about it. And after I got home from that, that trip, um, my father started drinking um, heavily. and um, and you know, every night, uh, you know, I sat by him in, in the living room as he drank himself into a coma and, and often um, couldn't be awoke, awakened at the end of the night. And I had to um, walk him to bed. And, and I grew up in a family with siblings and everybody in the family ignored it except me. And, you know, everyone kind of just split. I mean, I just remember being in this family room alone with him and I I really admired my father and um, loved him and like couldn't abandon him in a way, but it also was, you know, and this is the complex part. Um, the family lived in denial that this was going on and I would be the person to raise the issue. You know, can we talk about this? Well, there's nothing wrong, Brad. There's nothing going on. Um, you know, and so just a couple of drinks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over time, you know, it's a complex thing to talk about, but, you know, families of, uh, with alcohol issues, um, the kids take various roles. And I became the truth teller and, and what you might call the scapegoat. And people didn't like that I was disrupting the, the family mythology that we were perfect. Mm. And um, over time, even my siblings started to see me as the problem and I became kind of an outcast in my own family. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that continued on into adulthood and, and kind of became the carrier of, of the truth and the burden behind that truth and the pain of a family system that was really um, unhealthy. And, you know, if you know anything about family systems, which I've only learned through my own working through my stuff that, 
you know, usually a sensitive, a strong sensitive type is the one that carries the burden of the family secrets. And, and when you can't tell other people about it, when you're told not to talk about it, um, this burden gets heavy. And so it probably almost feels a little like shame. Yeah, well, shame, that's exactly right. And interestingly, you know, perfectionism is such a thing in, in, in our culture. And you know, as Brene Brown says, the flip side of perfectionism is shame. And so while the family's looking perfect and maybe even not feeling that much shame themselves, right. the shame is getting directed at me and I'm feeling it and holding it. And so it is, it was the shame and it was, there's now, you know, evidence in, in the psychological community that shame is actually a deep cause of, of depression. Yeah. And one of the things that happens and, and, is that when you have a lot of shame, when you have complex trauma that comes from living a life in which the people are telling you this is the truth and you're living in a different truth, there's cognitive dissonance. And one thing that happens is, is you develop a really aggressive um, superego, which is sort of the voice that kind of keeps you in line, but it's, mm. it's, it, it gets hyper developed and it ends up beating you up all the time, you know? And so you're, you're, you're a jerk, you're an asshole, you're a, you can do nothing right. And you end up kind of your own inner voice ends up kind of beating you into depression. And so my depression began, you know, right around 13 or 14 and it intensified through college came and went, I went through periods where I was okay, but, um, but then I became a travel writer and I was driven by a lot of ambition. And um, so I was like fueled up by ambition and wanting to become a writer and went off on these journeys and, you know, had quite a successful, you know, life as a travel writer and was coming home and collapsing mm. into bed and, and, and sort of not understanding why. And, and that began a journey through the mental health industry that was frustrating in its own right. So, yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit because you were diagnosed with one with a diagnosis early and carried that for quite a while and ended up on what I remember lots of medication. Yeah. Before yeah, actually so, getting the good diagnosis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was just after college, you know, um, uh, an uncle took me to see a psychiatrist that he knew, um, and I was suffering from depression and only, and I made a mistake. I spent 45 minutes with this man, uh, a psychiatrist in the Kansas city area. And, um, and, you know, I told him about the depression Well, he kept crying about other things and, you know, as they do. And, and I gladly told him that, you know, I was a spiritual little young person and I had kind of, I'd always had these kind of emotional merging experiences and they who knows what they were? I mean, they, on some level, they were merging with God and they were real on another level. Maybe it was how I was, how I was trying, my psyche was trying to deal with the situation I was confronted with as a kid. And his eyes perked up and, and I, after 45 minutes, you know, he hands me a prescription for lithium and a diagnosis of bipolar. Ooh. And so that led me on a journey of believing I was bipolar it did a couple of things for me. I mean, one of the things it did is it, it took away blame. You know, it's like, it, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my family's fault. 
you know, because it was a biological, something was wrong with my brain. And, and I loved that part of it in some way. And I enthusiastically took this medication for a long time until I was actually on a, on a journey, a, a, a trip to Indonesia to write about um, a group of surfer missionaries. And I became dehydrated and uh, my lithium levels became toxic and my kidneys began to fail. And I ended up being told when I got home, I was going to be on dialysis the rest of my life. So, so that was in all of it over a misdiagnosis, which of course it turned out not to be bipolar. Eventually I, the pain I was carrying became so bad. I ended up in Santa Fe, New Mexico with a new psychiatrist and who ended up just piling pill upon pill upon pill none of which were doing anything because it wasn't what he thought it was. Right. So um, I ended up on 23 or four pills a day, you know, like 12 different medications. And I barely left my home for a good five or six years. I mean, I, I had been at the top of the world, been traveling all over the world. I was flying back to New York to go to editorial meetings at George magazine with JFK jr. And, you know, and here I was, I, I, I was, I stumbled too much. Actually, I, I couldn't ride a bike. My wife um, at the time, you know, hid my bike because she was afraid I was going to kill myself in town, just riding around. And, and uh, I would just stumble down to the local cafe and, and I could barely even read, you know, the magazines that three or four years earlier I was on the cover of. And mm. so it destroyed my life and destroyed my marriage. And, um, and ended up in quite a, a hole in my life. And so, you know, it wasn't until even years later when I, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and at about age 51, um, you know, in, in a very tearful meeting, um, you know, this man just said, you've been through the ringer, and it's been none of these things that these doctors told you have. you have, you have trauma and PTSD. And I remember just just weeping and weeping at what at this journey I'd been on that had, um, you know, had been so hard and so shame filled and so misdiagnosed and so misunderstood without much support from my family who had seen me as an outsider and as part of the problem who never, you know, believed my version of the story of what my childhood had been about anyway. So, yeah. And I think that would be even, more devastating in that you've struggled with this kind of on your own for this whole time. Yeah. And even though it's a, a misdiagnosis, it's still, it, it, you never got to have that conversation. It sounds like with your family, like, no, I've one never been able to have it. They, um, you know, the, the times I brought it up, they, you know, they have um, seen me as angry as, you know, even a request for a conversation, nobody, you know, and it's not unique to my family. This is the way it works in, in, in dysfunctional, you know, addictive families is there's a myth about the family that their, their interest is in preserving. And, you know, this is a very successful family. So, you know, there's just a lot of stories that they're holding together. And, you know, in some ways my siblings were gone when I was sitting with my father, um, they may not even have the same reality in some ways, you know, I mean, right. whatever was driving them away, they just simply weren't going to be around to experience it. And, and so they had a different experience than I did. They also didn't have that role of holding the family burden as sort of a scapegoat. So 
they still look at me like I'm crazy. So, yeah. And I don't think that uh, that is uncommon experiencing different things within the same family. Like when people go to talk about experiences, I've got an older sister and a younger sister. And sometimes we've seen things completely different. Like someone will remember absolutely nothing. The other person right. remembers all these traumatic details that are so intense. And, and I think that's just amazing how we right. experience those differently for whatever reason, one person's body or mind just needs to shut down and not acknowledge it. Yeah. It's easier to not deal with it. And the other person maybe a sensitive person right. absorbs it. And you've, you've been at least self-aware enough that you've never just, you probably had moments, it sounds like, but you knew that there was something more, something's not right. There's yeah. something not clicking, whatever that is. I don't know, but you didn't give up. So I think that's, I awesome. know. And there, there is a, there is something about hope that I've had that served me. And at times as, you know, as everything's a paradox, sometimes the hope has, has sometimes looked like hoping my family would change. And, and so, you know, hope is a, as one of, you know, friend and teacher of mine says, hope is never a good strategy, but there was an inner, inner light that kept me knowing that I could get through this, that I do appreciate, even if sometimes I've had too much hope that, you know, in an outcome that was never going to happen. So. Yeah. So working with um, a specific trauma therapist, you've been able to kind of process some of that, right? Like you're, yes. you know, you're still on a journey. <laughs> yeah, I am. So I ended up, um, after this diagnosis, um, finding a trauma specialist in Boulder and that work changed my life because, um, you know, I, I learned techniques to, to deal with, um, these episodes of these basically with their emotional flashbacks or what people with complex PTSD have. And people know about the word flashback, you know, with like, you know, war veterans have, you know, these vivid flashbacks of a horrible thing they did or, or went through. And the thing about an emotional flashback that's sometimes even harder, and this is, you know, complex trauma um, is sort of a, you know, a, a side part of, of trauma. And but the emotional flashbacks can be even worse because there is no visual component to it. So what happens, and if, pe if people don't know what trauma is, like your body is telling you that you are um, under attack, basically, or you're having your, your, your back in the experience that caused the trauma. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so your body's like freaking out telling you, you know, warning, warning, you are in a dangerous situation, you've got to do something and get out. And that's how it feels like your body, you know, I was talking to uh, somebody the other day about what it feels like, and it feels, you know, it reminds me of the incredible Hulk when he's, you know, kind of like expanding into the big person. It's, it, no, I'm not, it's not what happens physically, but it, the, the image of watching that is kind of what it feels like. It feels like your body is, is wanting to escape from itself. Mm. And it's just, it's terrifying. And, um, and there's also no visual component to it now with complex because often it happens over a period of time, right? It's sort of the, the words people tell you, the lies you live with, it created the cognitive dissonance and over time. And so you just, you know, so you just hadn't something happened, an argument with somebody or something, but, or, but suddenly you're, you're in, in it again. It's just really a frustrating thing. 
and that's why it looks like bipolar to some people. And this is a, mm-hmm. this is a national issue. I mean, I'm not the only person this has happened to who've been on lots of drugs. I mean, yeah. um, for bipolar only to turn out, it was trauma. It's a, it's a common thing that, you know, people of my generation, I'm 55, you know, we came of age with the promise of Prozac and all these medications and, mm-hmm. and doctors loved to call people bipolar back then and give them a bunch of meds. And, and it actually made it harder to impossible to heal because then you can't feel anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm grateful that, that trauma specialists have now advanced, but anyway, long story short, that's yeah. So uh, the tra- trauma specialist, instead of just telling your stories out, you know, inventing, she actually has you feel them and, and oh. experience these stories in your body. And the other thing that's interesting um, is that, you know, they don't really don't know why, specifically, but really kind of nonlinear things like yoga, dance, um, all these other modalities, you know, EMDR, they've discovered really work far better than pills work. And so in this country, we just love pills and love, you know, these pharmaceuticals and and treat the the symptom. I know, right. (laughs) Not the root cause. (laughs) I know. And and so one of the things that they don't, you know, people will laugh at, you know, someone doing doing dance to be healing thing, you know, you should take a pill instead, but it's, it's really, they're finding this more effective. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the pill too is, we're such an instant gratification society today that a pill just seems like a quick fix. Not, not only do we not read all of the things it might cause and probably will (laughs) add to your, your, uh, woe is me thing. It's like, it's, it, they're just, it's not the fix. It's, it's a cover up, which right. requires another layer, which can require another layer. And it's just not a healthy overall. Yeah. Yes. I know some people medication is a must and it does help some things. I'm not shaming all medication. <laughs> right. And to be clear, I take, I take a, a, a mild dose of antidepressant now because, you know, my brain got affected by this and it does help me keep, you know, kind of, my mood better. So I'm, I'm not anti-pharmaceuticals, but I, you know, I am, I am anti the way they're used so frivolously and aggressively. And yeah. Yeah. I say, get a second opinion. Yeah. Always, right. If, when it's something like that and you're going to be on medication for a while, yeah. when you were talking about the, it, um, kind of taking away your feelings, it reminded me, my mom was diagnosed bipolar as well mm-hmm. many years ago. And she struggled with that. Sometimes they'd put her on different, you know, like change her meds and it would just be like right here. She couldn't even hardly hug you. She just had no, it was like, is she there? (laughs) And she didn't like that. She knew it was happening. And she was like, I don't like that. And so what would happen is then she would go off her meds, which she needs something. Yeah. You You know, there is an imbalance after years and years and years of having that you need help. And it would just, you know, it would be a constant struggle. So I well, I've heard it said, way. you know, this, this whole medication thing, which I, I, you know, there are uses for it and many uses probably for it, but it is sort of like using a sledgehammer on, you know, they don't know why these things work and how, and, and so it's pretty primitive, really. It's sort of a, yeah. And I think they, you know, but it's, it's dressed up like they, these doctors really know what they're doing. So, yeah. That's the funny thing. I know. <laughs> we trust uh, the medical profession way more than I think we should. I know. I agree. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about um, the yoga, because I know that's something that you found to be helpful and you teach it. So I, yeah. I want to connect people to you and your yoga. 
And then I want to dive into your book a little. Sure. Well, so I started practicing yoga in around 1994, um, you know, when I thought I had bipolar as, as, and it was just a way at that time. um, I loved the, how it made me feel. Um, I did notice, you know, the altars in the front of the room and I was curious, but I wasn't, you know, I was a journalist and I was sort of skeptical of, of, you know, any deeper way. I was a typical American practitioner of yoga, which is just exercise. Right. And then over time, um, you know, I think during those dark years, I stopped going, but then as soon as I got out of those darkest years, when I was on all those medications, I picked it up again. And this time I was, um, really, in a different space and wanting to heal. And, um, I committed to going, you know, to yoga six days a week and I just knew it was good for me. And before I knew it, I was reading book after book about yoga and I began to see the, the deep spiritual path that yoga really is. And that I think, again, most Americans are kind of oblivious to, but the, you know, the philosophy behind it and the way, you know, we can, I could go forever about the philosophy and stuff, but I began to see it as a healing path. Even before I got the, the, the uh, trauma diagnosis, it just, I felt more empowered. I felt better. I felt more in touch with my body. Um, and it was doing something real for me. And I ended up um, becoming a yoga teacher at age 50 and, um, and uh, you know, in a, in a room full of, you know, 23 year olds and, um, <laughs> um, and it was, it was a bold move and uh, it's something I'm proud of. And, and, uh, I ended up teaching in a studio in Boulder and then, um, now I teach privately or I teach, you know, anyone can come. I teach through my website and every Tuesday and Thursday morning at, um, 9am central time. And, uh, so what is that? 10am Eastern and, uh, 7am Pacific. Um, so early out West, but, uh, and I, I teach a, you know, kind of a moderate, flow vinyasa practice and it's and it's a wonderful way i love it just love that i can share what this gift that i've gotten so much from uh, and and learn to be back in my body from i mean americans we just sit and stare at our computers we are so in our heads and yes. we've lost the sense that we are you know animals i mean you know that we need nature we need to move our bodies and feel our bodies so yeah yeah i i completely agree when i we go hiking. It's Arizona. So we try to go hiking as much as possible, but it's been really hot. And then I've been busy and traveling. And, and I think, man, I feel that when I don't really get to connect yeah. with nature and be in it. So I've been trying to just sit out on the back patio some and like take it in. I get it. I, <laughs> I agree. Big, yeah. It makes a big difference. Well, let's talk a little bit about your website because I know you have several offerings on the website mm-hmm. of ways you can connect and work with people on different things. So I know the yoga, you've got your memoir coaching, writing coaching. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, so you can see my, my podcast is there. I also offer uh, private coaching for, for memoir writing and I'm about to launch two new uh, courses, uh, group courses in, um, in memoir writing and also in writing, um, kind of memoir self-help book. So if you're a therapist or an entrepreneur and you want to share your ideas, um, this other course will be about how to write, you know, kind of a book that draws on your life or in career experiences to teach the things you want to teach. So those, those are going to come online um, in October. So. 
Well, that's very good. And your website is basically just your name, bradwetzler.com. Bradwetzler.com. That's yeah, B-R-A-D-W-E-T-Z-L-E-R.com. All right. Fantastic. Well, I want to get into your book. It's something that won't be out for a while, but you can officially talk about it. <laughs> yep. It's, the, the title for now is called Adventures in Healing. And um, it's, a, it's an adventure story. It goes around the world and it also chronicles this inner journey of healing um, through time. And yeah, the book begins, um, it's 1996 and I'm an editor at a, a, a magazine called Outside, which was an adventure travel magazine. And um, I'd, I had assigned an article to John Krakauer, a famous journalist and writer to travel to Mount Everest and climb Mount Everest. And the year he climbed it um, and to write about it, the year he climbed it was the year that there was a, uh, I believe 10 or 11 deaths up there and it was the disaster on Everest in 96. And so, um, so I, I wrote, I coached him to write that story and then edited the story and the book begins there and I'm struggling with depression and struggling with all these trauma symptoms, even as I'm helping him write the book and he ends up with PTSD he's later talked about, but, um, so it begins there and, and, um, and this follows the path I've, I've gone on to healing. It takes me over to Israel and Palestine where I spent three months sort of post that drug period, trying to understand my life and figure out if I could believe in a God again. And I walked in Jesus footsteps all over Palestine and Israel came home and realized I couldn't and did that wasn't my path. And that's when I really then tell the story of getting into yoga. And then that takes me, on a healing path in, in Boulder and then over to India twice um, on two more trips to India. Once where I have a, a mind blowing 12 hour mystical experience. And then the second time I kind of have a, I'll call it a come to Jesus moment where I, you know, find myself kind of laid bare and, and maybe in touch with my true self and my soul even. And, and, and at that point I have a, a diagnosis of trauma and I, I, begin working with the therapist and, and learning all these strategies to, to heal, finally heal. So. Oh, that's wonderful. I cannot wait for it to come out. I know it's going to be a while, but I'm excited that you're writing it and your travel stories are amazing. So I'm sure they're going to be wonderful to read. Are you going well, to, you. yeah. Are you going to do audio as well? And are you going to read it or. You know, you know, I am doing an audio book and, and I, I haven't gotten that far to know if I will read it or not. I guess I'd like to if, if that's uh, in the cards. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that'd be so wonderful. Okay. Cool. It'll be a while in it, but some of the stories you'll hear on my podcast or you'll see on my blog. So, um, yeah. So check those out. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask too, is, is it some of the stories from your podcast? I'm sure they'll be in there too, because those are your life experiences. That's what those stories are. Yeah, there will be, and there, but there will also be kind of an unpacking of the hard work I had to do to heal. It wasn't all just traveling and having mystical experiences. There were hours in therapy offices, hours, you know, in my apartment practicing yoga and meditating alone. There were hours of, you know, kind of dealing with life and and getting retriggered and taking steps backward and and sort of there's there's going to be some useful chapters in it about you know what what one needs to do to heal and and how much work it takes and and so yeah. I, mean, I think that's great because I, I do think there's a misnomer that healing is one two three step and you're healed or that you know being mindful is the same thing I'm like 
all of that is a journey and it's a long journey and it could be a lifelong journey. Yeah. It's, it's not something that just happens and you're healed. It's, right. It's trauma and we continue to have trauma happen to us, which can re-trigger it. And even though we can release it, there are things that you will constantly have to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, the subtitle of the, the title of the book is adventures and healing. And the subtitle is um, a 10 year quest, my 10 year quest to heal depression and cope with trauma. And I, I think that last part, I mean, I think we can heal some of the trauma, but I also, know that I'll be living with it most of my life and, and, um, and that coping with it and learning how to not have it spin you out and lose days of work. Or, I mean, how you start to, and a lot of it's learning to be gentler with yourself. It really is because mm-hmm. one of the triggers that can happen is that that abusive, you know, inner critic, uh, can actually bring out the trauma and come make it worse. So, yeah. Right. A little of a, the acceptance piece too. Definitely. Right. I mean, one of the hell, one of the things that's done the most healing for me was I practice what's called metta meditation every day. And it's a, it's a Buddhist practice um, that is oriented towards um, um, yeah, being more compassionate to yourself and others. And there's a kind of a pattern of, of, you know, may I be, you know, healthy, may I be peaceful, may I be free. And, you know, may like the you. people who are in your life who are difficult, you, you run through those same phrases so it's a really healing thing for for us to for me it has been to soften that inner critic and and so yeah yeah i was just talking with a gal today on vedic meditation oh yes oh yeah i think you know her susan Susan. (laughs) yeah Uh, she's in a group i'm in Uh, yeah yeah i thought i was like wow this sounds like a really interesting meditation and that's what i think i like about meditation there are so many different ways to do it there will be one that will speak to you and then the thing that you need in that moment or at that time and you may advance and move on to different types or styles but i I love meditation for that reason because there are so many different avenues you can go I agree. And, and guided meditations are so powerful. I mean, for beginners, especially, it's like if you're intimidated by it, you know, it's just like, just find one of these apps that have great guided meditations and just listen and, you know, put your hand on your heart and lie on the couch. And that's all you need at first. Eventually, if it works for you, you might end up sitting quietly for, you know, 20 minutes or longer. But hey, if you if you only lie on the couch with your hand on your heart and and listen to a guided meditation. That's meditation. It's, it's really a healthy thing. Yeah. Cause I'm like, don't get caught up and it's gotta be done a specific way. Do what right. feels right. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise you'll never really, you know, absorb and relax. So, yeah. You know, I heard a, uh, Jack Cornfield is a, is a teacher that I love. And, um, yeah. he's often said that we in the West, you know, rather than trying to become these meditators that are, you know, self-reliant and meditate on you know, he said just just do do a year or two of meta meditation only you know just forget mm-hmm. you know we in the west are not gonna we're not on the path necessarily for full enlightenment and we're we're kind of babies in the spiritual path and that you know it's if you could just learn to be more compassionate to yourself that's that's what we need so yes yeah. That's a great place to stop. I love right. it. <laughs> well, thank you, Brad, for coming on. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're a busy man. Well, thank you, Cassie. And uh, I'm really grateful you had me on. And I look forward to hearing this. 
Yes, absolutely. And to all of you out there, thanks for tuning in, listening, watching. Stay safe, stay curious, and I'll see you soon.